0: Hi, and welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute. In today's episode, we're revisiting our interview with Jessica Goodell, Marine and author of Shade It Black, Death and After in Iraq. Her story of trauma to healing and resiliency is powerful. This episode deals with mature content that may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised.
1: Hi,
2: everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute. My name is Alyssa. Today, I am joined by just Dr. Jessica Goodell. Hi, Jess. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? Good. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, so to get started, uh, can you share a little bit with the audience who you are, what branch you served in, um, and any fun facts about yourself? Um, sure. My name is Jessica. So I served in the Marine Corps from 2001 to 2005. Um, fun facts? I don't know. I have a dog. I love her. Um I don't know any fun facts. Um I'm really into academia and reading um and family, I guess. Yeah, so I think um a, a big fun fact about yourself is that um Jessica is the author of Shaded Black, a memoir about her time in the service. Um, and when she was deployed, and you were deployed where again? So I was deployed to Iraq. Um, I was at a place at the time. It was called Camp Ducatum. Um It's just a couple miles west of Baghdad. And that was during 2004. So yeah. So what led you to the decision to serve? Did you have any family members that influenced your decision? Um, I didn't. Um, my grandpa was in the Navy and I had an uncle that served in the Navy as well. Um, but that really... I guess it was kind of just like in the back of my mind. Um I don't really think I felt any um desire to go into the military um as a result of my family, but um for me what ended up happening is um uh I happened to be in high school. I was 18 and there was a recruiter there and he was in his Marine Corps their their dress blues. So it's a, like a dress uniform and he happened to be Um, standing in the class that I was in, because he was going to use the classroom when our class was over. And I remember going up to him and saying, you know, what are you doing in in our high school, in our classroom? And he said, well, you know, I'm here to recruit some of the young men into the Marine Corps. And for me, that kind of triggered my feminism. And so I thought, uh, (laughs) and I said, um, you know, what about the young women? And like the perfect recruiter that he was, he said, you know, why don't you come down to my office and talk about it? Um, And I did. And I feel like the rest is kind of history. Um, Yeah. There were a few things that happened in his office, too, that kind of just made me really want to prove myself. And, um, And so I ended up joining like on the spot. So more like spur of the moment than something that I had planned, you know, since childhood. Sure. What were those other things that, um, really kind of made you go, this is what I'm doing with my life? Yeah, that kind of pushed me. Um, so, so I go to his office and, you know, I was just kind of like entertaining the thought at that point. I wasn't really serious about it. Um, but he, so in the Marine Corps at that time, the recruiter handed me a binder and in the binder were pictures, laugh at the joke, I guess. Um, (laughs) pictures for Marines about like different jobs that they could do. And then like little blurbs about, um, you know, the description of the job. And so I'm flipping through this binder and I'm looking at all the pictures. And the first thing that I saw that caught my eye was a tank. And so I said, you know, Oh my gosh, that would be so cool to work on a tank. And he said, Oh, well, actually, you know, in the Marine Corps, women don't work on the tank crews. And I was like, Oh, oh my God, this guy's like two for two, right? Like, oh my gosh. So in that moment, I kind of decided that I was going to pick the most masculine job for me, you know, that, that I could think of sure. um, in this binder that I was allowed to do. And so for me, that was heavy equipment, um, diesel mechanics. So I pointed to this awesome. picture of, which is basically like um, like construction equipment. Like it's just huge, giant equipment. Um, And so I pointed to the picture and I was like, that's what I want to do. And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, and I was like, yes, (laughs) that. Um, And kind of, I guess a little comical is that like, I knew nothing about mechanics, like nothing. Um, Oh, no. I had a car. (laughs) No, yeah. I had a car and we had to put the gas and that was about it. Um, But I was like, so determined, you know, um, I'm going to prove myself. Um, so that was that. And then I ended up signing up. And then I called my dad on the phone. He was my first phone call. I called him at work. And prior to this um, experience, I was supposed to be going to college. Um, like that was what was expected of me. I'd already like taken a couple tours of a couple different colleges. I was already signed up to enroll in one of the colleges. And I called my dad and I was like, um, I'm not going to college. You know, silence. Um, I just joined the Marine Corps silence. Um, so really through, uh, my parents, my family, my plans It kind of threw it all for a loop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so college was definitely an option there. Um, and you just kind of, I guess, felt probably a little bit of a higher calling with, with going to the Marines and being able to really prove yourself there. Um, what would you have studied if you went to college, like immediately after, after high school? I was looking at psychology. I wanted to major in... Okay. The major that I was looking at was applied psychology. So I wanted initially to get into like advertising, like that kind of avenue of psychology. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And that ended up not happening oh. <laughs> at all. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> now um, you went... Because after, obviously, you went back to school... Um, you have your doctorate what is your doctorate in my doctorate actually is in psychology um okay so I still kind of kept the the um the focus of psychology but I completely changed what I wanted to do with it um absolutely so I think okay so this is my just my opinion I my I think that a lot of people join the military because they they want to make a difference (laughs) right and they they want to help people like i really feel it like truly that people think that they're going to help people and make a difference and they're going to be somebody and you know they're they're going to go be somebody they're going to go do something important and meaningful and valuable and so for me that was just that calling when i was in the the with the recruiter um and so that's why i put the psychology on hold um but then i kind of came back to the psychology when i got out um for, for very different reasons, um yeah, but st- st- like in the same kind of vein, like searching for that meaning, that value, that purpose now with psychology yeah, that's it. and that's incredible that you you found that um having read the book, I know you found that, <laughs> um, and we'll get to that in in the later episodes, but um, take us through so you you graduated high you went to the recruitment office, you signed up for the Marines. You graduated high school. When did you go to boot camp? Um, So I graduated in June of 2001. And then I took the summer to kind of be a kid. And then in August of 2001, that's when I went off to boot camp. And can you walk us through boot camp? What were um, what were some of your expectations that may or may not have been met when you that's what and it, it's it's paris Island, correct yep, um, I had no idea what to expect, and um <laughs> there's pros and cons of that um <laughs> but it was it was um intense, very, very intense um i I think that like a common notion I think that a lot of people um believe is that especially in the Marine Corps, the purpose of boot camp is to carry you down, to build you back up. So whatever you walk in that door with, um, kind of gets just uh, eliminated. <laughs> you know, you're no longer, um, you no longer bring those, okay, well you do, the traits obviously stay with you in your core, but um, kind of some characteristics that a lot of us bring to the table and some mannerisms and maybe some vocabulary, or, you know, just kind of like some, superficial things kind of get tossed out the window and then you are restructured, or at least I was restructured to be a Marine. So I learned how to talk and walk and act and behave um, and think and feel and do everything as this new person that I felt like I had was created in boot camp. Um, You know, certainly like I didn't lose my identity, but my identity got formed and shaped and shifted into a very strong um military mindset through boot camp. Now I think and I think you mentioned it in your book that um out of the marines there's about 6% that are female. Um is that still true today? Um I think the numbers have fluctuated a little bit more. I think okay, but I could be wrong. But I do know that the numbers <laughs> have shifted. Um Um, I know for a little while there was, um, an influx of females. And then I know there, I just read a recent article saying that they're going to be cutting a whole bunch of Marines from the, um, Marine Corps. So I know that those numbers are going to shift again. Um, but I think it kind of fluctuates right around that number. What kind of bonds, um, now this is almost 20 years ago. What kind of bonds did you make with other Marines and other female Marines in boot camp? Yeah, that's crazy. 20 years ago. Um, (laughs) bonds in boot camp um, were pretty significant. Um, And I I think that might be an understatement. Um, Because, so it's in boot camp that you, or that I was taught, and I think a lot of us were taught, um, you kind of make this decision that the person's life next to you um you need to do whatever it takes to protect them so if that means that you're jumping on the grenade if that means that you're taking the bullet if that means that you are you know that you um are going to risk your life get injured in any sort of way that decision is made in boot camp for the person next to you um and so you have Um, like, they're called bunkies, people that you share your bunk with, Um, you have people in your fire team, in your squad, in your platoon, and all of these people um, you are willing to die for. And, um, and I think that really creates a strong, intense bond, not only with those people, but then like with fellow Marines. Um, So then that mentality carries that collective mentality carries into school, and then into training, and then when you deploy and when you go to combat, you have this intense bond with the people next to you where you are responsible for them. Um, And I think that that's a big part of the reason why Marines 20 years later, 40 years or 60 or 80 years later, still feel such a strong connection to these people because these are people that I'm willing to sacrifice my life for. At one point in time, I was willing to do that. You know, at one point in time, I was responsible for their life. So those bonds are just super intense. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely comes across in the memoir. Um, You speak about it many times and it's something that you go back to a lot um, to really reinforce that idea. And it's something that what I find interesting is there's several branches in the military and each one kind of has like this different, not necessarily code of conduct, but there's an innate thought in, in um, I don't know the right word, but there's something that drives each branch separately, um, mm-hmm. which is so interesting. And that's, I think, something that the Marines just, anyone, I mean, as a civilian, I know you never leave a Marine behind. Um, yeah. The, yeah. Um, pain is weakness, leaving the body, you know, the, the yep. different things. So it's really interesting to see kind of a first
1: or listen to a first hand um explanation of it yeah i think okay i've spent some time thinking about this
2: and i'm open <laughs> to being wrong about it i'm probably am wrong about it um my thought on it though is that i think it's because like each branch has their own mission um and so each mission kind of entails different things I mean, ultimately, but, yes, we can all die in combat. Like it doesn't matter what branch, it doesn't matter what gender, it doesn't matter what race, you, we, we're all vulnerable to that. Um, but we all mm-hmm. kind of go about it in a little different way. And you're absolutely right. Like it, it, it almost embodies itself differently in our yeah. mentality and in our bonds. Yeah, it totally does. I mean, I know in high school talking to guys that were um, thinking about going into being a Marine and it was like, did have not even set foot into a recruiter's office, but it's like, it's there in their mind. So it's very, I think embodied is the perfect word. That's what I think the word I was looking for. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you have to do any extra training in order to, for your job specifically? Yeah. So every, they're called MOSs. So military occupation specialty. Um so everybody goes to their own special training. So after boot camp, okay, now back in 2001, after boot camp, we did this um exercise called MCT, which was Marine combat training. And for us, we spent 3 weeks um basically in the woods um in North Carolina um digging holes, living in the holes, practicing combat um because it's combat training. Um practicing, shooting firearms, um, kind of the basics of combat. From there, uh, and back, back in 2001, and I keep saying that because it just, it, training changes with the times. So it's possible that people who are going through it right now are doing something different. But, um, but then after that, then we went to our specialty training school. And so for me, that was heavy equipment, diesel mechanic. Um, and I was there for about three months. And um, it was so funny. So every week, basically, we were learning a different topic. So maybe this week we're learning about brakes. Next week we're learning about hydraulics. Um, Next week is fuel systems. Right? It's all mechanics. Um, And for me, I yeah, I didn't know anything about mechanics, but I'm a really good student. So um, I was sitting like front and center of every single class. I was writing down every single thing that 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 the instructors were saying, um, I was, I'm that annoying person (laughs) raising my hand, asking questions. Like I am super involved because I didn't know anything. Um, and I knew that I had to absorb everything that I could. Um, and so that happened and I actually ended up graduating. Um, there were two of us that graduated at the top of our class. Um, so for me, that was like a really proud moment of, Going into a field I knew nothing about and putting a ton of work in, like I was studying every night. And there, I'm in this classroom with these guys that are they've been working on tractors and cars and motorcycles their entire lives, you know. And yes. I'm going home like studying, <laughs> like I gotta read this stuff. I gotta look <laughs> this stuff up. Like I don't know anything about this stuff. Um, and so for me, that was a really proud moment, like graduating at the top. And as a um, like a reward for doing that. We were able to pick our next duty station. um everyone kind of gets preferences, but we almost got like a guaranteed preference, so to speak um oh, wow. So after school, yeah, so after school, um my next duty station was Okinawa, Japan. How long were you there for so that was so you you um enlisted in two thousand and one by two thousand and two yes. you were um a graduated marine, I guess you would could call it, yeah. <laughs> Um, you had all your training, and then two thousand and two is also when you we went to Okinawa, Japan. You had it, yep, and so I'm in Okinawa, I'm working as a heavy equipment mech um so basically what that means when you're active duty um you know five days a week, you're putting on your camis, you're going to work, um you're working as a mechanic five days a week um and then having weekends off. <laughs> if you're
1: lucky.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and I, so I was doing that. And typically that duty station is a year long. Back then it was a year long. Um, however, okay. what ended up happening was that March, 2003 happened. And that was when the Marine Corps invaded Iraq. Um, right. For the initial like operation Iraqi freedom. So when that but happened, also- what they did. Oh, sorry. Yeah.
1: No, no. Um, so I
2: just wanted to back up because I completely this completely just went over my head. But you joined just a few months before nine eleven. Yes, I was in boot camp when nine eleven happened. Um, so okay. it was really scary because we just had no information. Yeah. Um, we were on the parade deck practicing drilling, which is basically like we're outside on this paved area. Um, practicing like marching um mm-hmm. and they called us over and they told us what was happening um wow and so it was really it was really scary because you didn't have access to anything you know i couldn't pick up the phone and call my mom i couldn't just like turn on the tv or turn on the radio like you're really limited
1: to the, no the information that you have
2: <laughs> right we didn't it, yeah we, we couldn't get on there, you know we couldn't get on we couldn't get on the internet like there's no we, we weren't reading newspapers, we're just in this you know this bubble of boot camp, yeah, um yeah, so nine eleven happened yeah, in boot camp, and so we knew that actually like really kind of amped up the mentality of the training of like something just happened, and there's a really good chance that you guys are gonna deploy like we don't know when we don't know where like but there's Things are happening in the world. And so, this training you need to take very seriously because you are going to use it.
0: In part two of Jessica's interview, we dove deeper into her deployment experiences in Iraq. Discretion is advised going forward as her story does deal with death, suicide, assault, and her mortuary affairs experience in detail.
2: Welcome back, Jessica. For this portion, we're going to dive into your service. Okay, sounds good. yeah, so you mentioned you were in boot camp. Um, you joined, in, or you enlisted in the Marines um, in 2001, right before 9-11. Um, you were at in boot camp during 9-11. Um, then went to, after that, you went to Okinawa, Japan. And um, you mentioned there was an event in March of 2003. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah. so... Um, so I was in Okinawa, Japan, um, starting in about 2002, and typically that's a one year rotation. However, um, so March 2003 happened, and March 2003 is the beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so the military sent an entire wave, I mean, thousands of Marines over to Iraq. And when that happened, the military um, kind of put forth this act of stop loss, stop move. And so what that means is that at that time, no one could get out and no one is changing duty stations. Like everybody's staying put. Um, so as a result of that, I ended up staying in Okinawa for about two years. Okay. And were you doing, so you were originally only supposed to be there for about a year, staying there for two years did you have any changes in your day to day? Um, or were you kind of doing the same, same thing, working five days a week, sometimes having weekends off? Yep. Everything kind of same, everything for us kind of stayed status quo. Um, and I think it was because like we were so far removed, you know, literally on the other side of the world from Iraq. Um, and so for us it was just staying on course and being prepared, um, So Marines can deploy, um, like 24 to 48 hours within that much notice. We need to be ready to go. Um, and so that's what we were doing. We were just ready to go. Um, kept doing training, um, a lot of combat training, um, but mission as usual. So you were there from 2002 to the early part of 2004. When was it? So in, in your book, um, Jessica is the author of Shaded Black. Um, A memoir about her experience in the Marines and when she was deployed to Iraq. So you were part of the Mortuary Affairs in Iraq. When? Yeah. Was it in Japan that you got those orders? No. So um, finally, stop loss. That move was lifted, and almost within like it was like a couple weeks. We were on a plane to come to California. So they almost immediately started rotating Marines to different duty stations. So at that point in time, my next duty station was Twenty Nine Palms in California. Um, so that I think it was like the end of two thousand three, early two thousand four. Like it was right in the end, because um, it wasn't exactly two years that I was there, just about. And um, and I just started being with my platoon. And what happened for me is that this platoon that I entered into just got back from Iraq. So they had just been in combat together. They were on the ground. They were part of that initial invasion. Um, And I talk a little bit more about like what that initial invasion did in the book, but um, it was really intense for them. And so I'm entering into this platoon that has these intense bonds and they've just seen some serious combat. Um and that's when I kind of started feeling the pressures of the Marine Corps, um externally, but like also like within myself. Like I own this. Um there's this idea in the Oh were you gonna say something? I I was just gonna make a comment. It's that badass feminist female that's coming out of you. <laughs> yeah, probably, yes. I have never been mentioned, but probably, yes. There is this idea in the Marine Corps and probably in in my own mind, right, that in order to be a real Marine, you need to go to combat. And nobody ever said that. You know, you never learned that anywhere, but that was in my head somewhere. And so here I am in this platoon. All these guys just went to combat together. They all just came back together. Um, they're all struggling. I mean, it's obvious, like they're all going through stuff, right. You can see the gears going in their head. You can see their expressions are different than mine. Um, and I kind of felt like I needed to go. Um, nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever made me feel that way. That was just like this internal, like, I got to do my job. You know, Marines are trained to go to war. I haven't been to war. My buddies have been to war. Like, I need to share that burden with them. You know, the sense of that collective mentality and wanting to share that load with them. Um, So I was only in 29 homes. It was just a little bit. I mean, a couple months, maybe a month, two. I'm not sure. Just a little bit of time. And one day, the platoon sergeant, he held a formation. And information is when they like pass on announcements. They like pass on word, is what's called. Um, and he says to the formation, "Hey, um, they're sending Marines back to Iraq." And you can see everybody getting like uneasy. They're kind of shifting, like you know, they just got back, you know. Um, and he goes, um, "Good news. They've already got all the mechanics. Like they've already planned out who they were sending that were mechanics, and they they weren't sending our platoon." So everyone was kind of breathing a sigh of relief. Um, He goes, however, if you do want to go back, um, you know, as um, jobs come up, we'll be asking the platoon for any volunteers. So that was kind of like put on the table for us. Um, So in my mind, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, go ahead. So The the mortuary affairs wasn't something that was immediately, hey, we have this opening. And you raised your hand. It was you didn't know what kind of jobs were about to become available. Correct. Okay. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is my chance. Like they're not taking mechanics, but I can volunteer for something else. And so in my mind, I had it that whatever came up, I was going to volunteer for. You're absolutely right. So um, it was a couple of days later, we're in formation again, and the platoon sergeant says, all right, they've got openings. He's like, they need volunteers for more affairs. And my hand just shot in the air. Um, I didn't think twice. Like I didn't. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, did you <laughs> no even hear? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just walk us through some of that, like, because um, you obviously you're, you're you have the the urge to serve and be deployed, which I think I've heard multiple service members say it, and I think it's something that's really ingrained in kind of across the board. All military service members don't might not think that they're true soldiers unless they've. Thought, um so you have that going through you but then probably also some excitement because this is what you've been training for right yeah and it's like your job it's like being trained for your job and then never doing your job so then the opportunity comes up to do your job and you want to go do it Um, so i'm gonna i'm gonna jump
3: in girls i'm gonna jump in ladies i should say and uh the jessica 29 stumps is an amazing place for a young woman to live life I, I got to ask the question for everybody that's been to the high desert. Were you also you know, anxious to get out of that place? Like, did that have any impact on, hey, I'm going to volunteer for anything to get out of here? <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, I laugh, but like, I'm sure it did. Because um, the other thing is that so when I got my orders from Okinawa to go to 29 Palm, as soon as they handed me the orders, they said, don't worry about it. You're not going to be there for long and i remember saying like why like why not and there was a mentality at least back then you know i'm sure i don't know if it's changed or not but the mentality back then was they don't want females there um it's a training um it's a, it's, it's, it's it's the whole point of that base is for training so because it's in the middle of the desert it's perfect for training for combat for middle east desert kind of combat facility and so the mentality back then is we don't even need females here like we just want infantry we want grunts we want like the, the men that are going to go to combat um so there was very few females in my entire battalion i think like a hand like a like i could count on one hand the number of females um so i'm sure that that was definitely like kind of playing in the back of my mind like i mean i might as well just get out of here um But I I think more so for me was that, um, that pull to go to combat. And, you know, I, I will say this, you know, as a kid, I mean, I was a kid, I was like 20, 21. Um, you think, you know, about the world and you don't, you know, like you think, you know, what you're getting into and you don't, you think, you know, um, you think you've prepared, you think you're ready, and you're not, and I think that that's kind of dangerous for kids when they're in that place in life, young adults, um, but still so much a kid um and so yeah, I had this idea, like I was gonna go to Iraq, I'm gonna help people <laughs> like I, you know i i'm gonna go i'm gonna make a difference, I'm gonna be somebody, and not having the slightest grip on reality of what that meant and not for nothing. I really think that a lot of people are in that situation. You know, you can train as much as you want for combat. You can do all the paperwork. You can do all the exercises. You can do all the drills. You can go to the range as many times as you want. And it is not the same as being deployed. It's not the same as being in a firefight. It's not the same as being in the, um, the combat environment. Um, so I was very naive um I thought one thing it was very different than that um so yeah so when they said mortuary affairs I just shot my hand in the air and the only comments there was like a couple of guys that like looked at me and they were like Goodell are you sure and I was like yeah you know like I gotta go and they're like dude mortuary affairs is gonna be tough and that's that's all that I knew and in my mind back then I was thinking like it's okay like all of combat's tough. Like you guys went, it was tough for you guys. Like I can do this. Like I, I just didn't I didn't know the gravity of what I was getting myself into. Right. Outside
3: no, of, being, not, in before, yeah, no, outside of yeah. being in combat before. Yeah, no, outside of being in combat before Mortuary Affairs is this uh weird detachment in the military. It's not something that yeah. Marines deal with on any basis at all. Right. Like you had never interacted with a mortuary affairs personnel or even probably heard of them to this point.
1: Correct. <laughs> Correct.
3: Yeah. So you volunteered blindly. How how old were you at yeah. this point in two thousand three?
2: Um well, two thousand and four, yeah. I must have been twenty one. <laughs> Um, So just old enough to think I know.
3: (laughs) Invincible, in charge, ready to prove yourself. And it sounds like you're in an environment where you feel like you have to prove yourself every day. So this is like this is like getting up to the the plate in the ninth inning uh, with three people on and two outs. And and you've got to perform to prove that you're you're willing you're worthy of being on the team.
2: Yes. Already as a female Marine, um, you are already, I was already, and I know a lot of females were in the same boat. You're doing double, you know, I've got to run just as hard. I've got to run just as fast. I've got to carry just as much weight. And okay. Like, in that sense, I'm doing like the same. I'm not doing more, but at my job, I have to, I have to be exact on my job. I have to know exactly what's happening at all times. Otherwise, if I don't, it's because I'm a female.
3: Right, it you're in one of you're in one of the most masculine uh, jobs yeah. outside of infantry that there are in the yeah. Marine Corps, which is a diesel yeah. mechanic, wheeled vehicle mechanic. So uh, you have to be proving yourself every day. I, as a citizen yeah. of America, I gotta say, like, um, I'm really sorry that that existed and exists because. Uh, it it's a reality I've, I've watched it myself and uh you it is it is something that you have to wager in every decision making decision that you're making mm-hmm. it, even as a mechanic you have to second guess yourself because if you make the wrong yeah if you fix it wrong then it doesn't work you're gonna get it twice as bad it's whereas, on
2: you male or female yeah
3: that's unbelievable well so what happens how How soon after you raise your hand to go on mortuary affairs? How long is it until you ship out, and what is the anticipation of going to siF, getting your gear uh what's going through your mind as you're as you're packing your sea bag uh, and getting ready to to go on this trip
1: um, I'm ready I mean I'm ready to go um, I was really amped up.
2: Um, you know, because it's everything that you've been training for has led to this moment of deploying. And so what happened with us, um, it was, I felt like it was really quickly, really quickly. Um, they brought, so because Mortuary Affairs is not, um, like a standard MOS, it's not a standard job in the Marine Corps. What the Mortuary Affairs consists of is a whole group of volunteers. Um, and for us, there was, I think it was like 15 active duty and three reservists that were activated. And so we all gathered in camp Pendleton. So just a couple weeks after that announcement was made, I go to Pendleton with these other volunteers. So in this Mortar Affairs platoon, um, I'm an HE Mac. There was somebody from supply. There was a cook. We had an HE operator. Um, The core of the platoon was NBC, um, which I think is called something different now, but back then it was called NBC, which is nuclear biological chemical. marines um so there was like five or six of them um our officer was nbc um we had a reservist um that actually owns um a morgue he's actually a mortician in civilian life so he volunteered to be activated um so we just have like a whole bunch of marines from different uh mos's that we all come together and then for the next month or so we're training And so what that training consists of is they show us the paperwork that needs to be filled out because um, when you have some of the paperwork consists of like outlines of bodies, you need to draw um, distinguishing marks. You know, the body has any scars or any tattoos on it, um, where the wounds are on the body. Um, There's one piece of paperwork where you need to write down all of the equipment, all the gear that's on the Marine when you get them. Um, on the remains. There's another one that's like an identification page where you write down their driver's license or their military ID, whatever they have on them. Um, you know, you write down as much inf- identifying information about them as you can. So they go through, they show us the paperwork to do. Um, then they had um, two morticians come in and kind of give us a class or two, like a couple classes, about what to expect from dead bodies. Um, you know, just kind of talking about like rigor mortis, um, talking about like skin color changes, um, you know, skin drying and receding, um, just some like kind of things that happen to bodies when people pass away. Um,
3: okay. I just want to, I want to back, I want to back you up, Jess. And and that is, uh, remarkable for me to consider. So for everybody else in America, it might be completely astounding that the marine corps doesn't have a mortuary affairs marine like this is yeah. their job like the army has an entire unit dedicated to this yeah the reason i i believe it's cuz every and this is what differentiates the marine corps from every other branch of service is every marine is a rifleman yeah and so there there's no non combat mos that's why The Marine Corps doesn't have chaplains. They don't have, uh, what else don't they have? They don't have anybody that doesn't serve a role in combat. And a mortuary affairs person doesn't. So they they had to train up people that this isn't their job. It's not what they enlisted for. It's not what they've trained for. And so I got to ask you a question. As you're a diesel mechanic from small town USA, from Okinawa to 29 Palms, raise your hand to prove yourself. And they're saying, hey, this is what a dead body does. You have to be relating this to your your brother and, and sister and that, um, that have come back from Iraq. You've seen the looks on the faces. Are you starting to digest what is about to happen?
2: Okay, it's starting to permeate my brain. Um, however, just as I say that it was nothing like when we got our first remain, um, just the reality is so much different than the training. I mean, the training is kind of like the book stuff, you know, like we're going to teach you all this stuff from this book. And then that's so much different than like the hands-on, um, to simplify. Um, so yeah, so at that point in time, it's starting to kind of like hit me like, yeah this is this is real like this is this is about to get real um still not intense though still not like still not a reality though and i think in part um and this is kind of now taking my psychology degree into account um i think that there's a big part where the brain really protects you um because i think if at that point in time i grasped the reality of the situation i don't know how successful i would have been at my job (laughs) So there's like this part of survival where I got to take in this information. I need to kind of process that information and I need to come back to work the next day and I need to learn more. Um, It was intense. Yeah, it was definitely intense. And so um, actually this other part of the training is kind of brings it to another level. Okay. So this next part is really graphic. It it can be graphic if you imagine it. Um, So In addition to the paperwork and kind of getting these classes on what to expect from deceased bodies, the last part of the training involved, um, we had these Marines show up at the shop and they literally dispersed in the field raw meat. And they trained us on like flagging it, um, kind of graphing and plotting like the location of the meat. you know, we prepared, like, we learned how to use the, um, PPE, right. The personal protective equipment, um, like the body suits and the gloves and the face mask. Um, and I remember at the time being like, this is so crazy. Why are they using raw meat? Like, I guess it's gonna, you know, be kind of graphic and like raw and bloody and everything. But like at the time I did not get why they were using raw meat. Um, like I thought I got it, but I didn't get it. um, the reason for it was because at that point in time, the nature of death in Iraq was IED. So most people that were dying in Iraq was because of the improvised explosive devices. And when people were hit with those or they stepped on them or they drove over them or whatever the case is, remains do not look like humans. Um, So that was the reason
1: for that piece of the training.
3: So uh, how how did you, how did you travel to Iraq? Uh, Commercial airliner, C-17?
2: We actually took a C-130 out of, I think we were out of Delaware. Um, So we flew commercial to Dover. And then from Dover, we took a C-130. The C-130 then flew us to Kuwait first. So we're in Kuwait and we were in Kuwait for about a month. Um so this was February 2004. Um we're there about a month waiting for all of the gear, all of the equipment, everything to get to Kuwait. Um and in the meantime, we're practicing like we're drilling for our convoy to Iraq and we're practicing like combat attacks. So like attack right, attack left. Um you know, who's going to go in what vehicle, um, what are the procedures? What if we get hit? What if the vehicle goes down? Like we had a plan for everything. Um, cause that's all that we had to do for a month was practice and plan and drill, um, and kind of prepare for this convoy to Iraq. So, um, eventually one day all of the equipment comes, like, I think it was like about a month. It was a couple weeks, about a month. And, um, we went to go pick it up. um, and it was just a couple days later, we, you know, cause it took us a couple days, to, like load everything up, get everything ready. And then we got in this massive convoy. Um, I mean, I don't even know how many vehicles, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of vehicles. Um, and I was a driver. I had an a driver and then six Marines in the back of my Humvee. And back in 2004, the Marine Corps did not have armor on our Humvees. So we were just driving along, and the six Marines in the back were wide open, just sitting on the benches in the back of the Humvee, like an open Humvee. Um, and everybody is on like high alert, um, just looking for anything out of the ordinary on this convoy. Oh, um, so, so oh, yeah. For those that for those that might not know what a Humvee is, can you kind of explain? the type of vehicle and maybe compare it to something that um, a a civilian would see in like rural America. Yeah. um, Yeah. So I actually, it actually kind of looks like the civilian Humvee, um, but it's kind of like a Jeep type vehicle. It's a Jeep kind of merged in with like a truck, like a pickup truck almost. Um, That's what our Humvees look like. So there's different varieties of Humvees, um, but the ones that we had, so basically um the driver and the A driver are contained in the cab. And then the back is wide open like a pickup truck and it has a bench on either side. So that if you were sitting in the back, like with a group of friends, you could all be facing in. So you could all talk to each other. Um so it's totally not like combat appropriate because it's super difficult to turn and point your rifle outward. Um it did not come with any mounts to mount our machine guns um so we had to build build our own mounts um we put sandbags in the back of it (laughs) i don't know what that would have done um it made us feel better i guess um and then so it's also like a super simplistic engine um I was also like in charge of making sure that all of our vehicles were up and running um, because I was the only mech in the platoon as well. Um, And then, um, yeah, I mean, it's a a very simple vehicle, very simple, straightforward vehicle. Um, It does not go very fast (laughs) like at all. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it.
3: (laughs) So what what month were were you traveling north?
2: I... I feel like that must have been March at this point.
3: Okay, so um, it's it's you trained a month in Kuwait. Kuwait is this beautiful tropical place where yeah it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. You you had great yeah. living arrangements while you were there.
1: Yeah, uh, especially yeah.
3: especially as a woman. How, how is how is Kuwait yeah. like? Help everybody understand like <laughs> what that month was like, leading up to okay, the country. so
2: Um, nothing like what you said. Um, it was um it's basically for us at that time it was basically a holding center um the whole point of it was just to get marines in and get marines out um so living quarters were um their tents like they're like heavy thick canvas tents um with cots in them and females sleep in their own tent well females sleep with other females in the in a female pen. And then all of the guys in the male platoon, they all sleep. They each sleep by their platoon. Um, so that's really challenging as a female just because all of the guys are all together and they know words, they know when to be and where to be. And I'm a lone female at that point in pen. There was two females in our platoon and we don't know when they're going where, like we need to go across the camp to find them. We, you know, cause there's no cell phones, no, there, you know, you don't check your email. Like you have to go there in person, um, insanely hot, um, and, um, really basic facilities. So like trailers, they did, there were showers there in the trailers, um, and like a chow hall and a PX. Um, so you could buy like Gatorade. Um, but that's, that's it. Like there's nothing there at that point in time when we were there, there was nothing there other than just these tents, um, and chow hall. Basically.
3: You said insanely Um, hot. You said insanely hot. And when I'm thinking about, uh, some of the stories that I I might've heard along the years, uh, you you said there's showers available. And so you, you got to wake up, use, use the restroom and, and take a shower without going outside. Uh, you were able to no. sit down and eat in your kitchen <laughs> that was attached to
2: your tent. Right. How did that go? So um, the only thing in the tent was the cops. So in order to go to the bathroom or take a shower, there's about like three or four showers for the females. You have to get fully dressed. Um, and when you are deployed overseas, it's sleeves down. So it's long sleeves, long pants, your boots, your rifle. You're wearing your flack or Kevlar. You're wearing all your gear. You've got your pack. like you're dressed all up, um, and you track it to a trailer that's, you know, a mile away. Um, take off all your gear, um, take a cold shower from a, um, you know, a pretty basic trailer, um, that's not well put together. So there's no water pressure. There's no hot water. That's not a thing. Um, but you get a couple minutes of water flow. So that's good. And get all dressed back up and then from there I would walk to the chow hall about another mile away just because there's so many tents. There's so many marines. There's so many people there. So everything's like really far away. Um and you know, chow is like super basic. Like this is not good food. Also <laughs> um, so it's really basic food. Um and the problem though with going to these trailers as a female is that um you know, if you have to use the restroom at night or um, you know, in the early morning, like you're going by yourself. And there was a lot of issues with females getting assaulted, um, or harassed um at these trailers or like on their way to the trailer. Um, so they were really encouraging females to like go in groups, go in pairs. Um, like it was not safe. Uh, even though you're on a on a base, even though you're surrounded by your brothers and sisters, like it's still not a safe environment so you know i think as like a female marine there's yes you're in combat and that's obviously dangerous and then there's this other part to it where you're also one of very few females and that
1: is also very dangerous um so not easy by any stretch
3: i really appreciate you bringing that up because the, the illusion is that we, we go and, and we're all together and it's safe and everybody's treated equally and there should be no concern. And in reality, in in 2004, it really shouldn't mm-hmm. be an issue for you to be serving alongside men. But the, the reality was and, and it continues to be that there's unique challenges. And uh, yeah. I'm really glad we're moving forward. In a lot of those trailers. Yeah, things. oh yeah. And I'm I'm grateful there was no wind when you got out of the shower uh trailer that blew sand all over you right after you showered because that would have been inconvenient. Never. That, I was super never nice happened. and fresh
2: when I got to the chow hall too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically you're just washing off the day before the sand just to get more sand on you. But you gotta you gotta draw a line somewhere, you know, how much sand is your body willing to hold before you right, you gotta right. do something about it.
3: Alyssa, what is it like to hear that perspective of like, even before combat spending a month like that, what does that make you feel like?
2: Um, there's a reason that I never enlisted.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: It's just, I mean,
2: I, 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 I enjoy helping people and that's why I'm involved with the Homeland Heroes. Um, but Yeah. Um, I'm not a beach person. Mm -hmm. I'm not an ocean person. So if I can't deal with sand in the middle of the summer, I don't think I would have enjoyed Kuwait very much. Yeah, no hard
3: pass. (gasps) I've never met met somebody that enjoyed Kuwait. So, uh, you're you're in good company. All right, Jess, take us, take us up to Iraq. What is, so you're in the Humvee, you got six Marines in your back. You're driving. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: I'm, I'm imagining you're grateful to leave Kuwait and get to the fight. Um, yes. but you, you, you're going northbound and yep. you probably reach this big sand berm. Yep. Which is the border. <laughs> what goes through Jessica's mind?
2: Um, it was, I think the most adrenaline that I've ever consciously been aware of going through my body. Um, just it's a like a this is it moment. Um anything can happen. You know, um what's going on with that shadow on the road? What's going on with that rock on the road? What's is there is that a piece of paper on the road? Because if it's not like are, are we driving over that? Or do I need to move over? Like the most intense paranoia. Um, because not only do you have this paranoia by yourself, like you obviously want to keep yourself alive, but as a driver, I'm responsible for seven other lives. Um, and that's not to include that, like, if I'm too, okay, so also, in addition to those seven lives, drivers were under strict instructions to maintain a specific distance from the preceding vehicle, um, as well as like a prescribed speed. So reasons for that were if you got too close to the vehicle in front of you, if they hit an IED, that could take you out too. Um, you know, if I was, um, too far behind them, we could get lost, um, because it's not just a straight shot. It's not just highway the whole way through. Um, there's times where we're taking detours, where we're going through villages, where something happened up ahead and we were supposed to take this route and now we're taking this route. So keep that vehicle in front of you. Like you don't know where you're going.
3: That can't um, be that hard though. Cause all you have to do is like right next to the air conditioning button on the Humvee, there's yeah. cruise control. Right.
2: Right. So no AC, no cruise control. These vehicles are going like 45, you know, it, it feels like you're pressing everything to get it to go 50. Um, <laughs> so if you do fall too far behind, um, good luck catching up because your vehicle can only go so fast. Um, and so it's insanely hot. The canvas windows are zippered down. Um as a driver, my rifle is sitting next to me. So it's not, I mean, it's available, but like, it's not at the ready. So here's hoping no one's shooting at me. Um, and it's incredibly stressful going through these villages because there's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of civilian traffic. There's a lot of people walking. There's a lot of kids crossing the street. And what was really scary about that for me um, was that it's all men. I didn't see any women. And for me, that I took that to be a sign of what's about to happen. Like, why aren't the women out? Now, maybe it was a cultural thing. Like maybe they were doing their own thing at that time of day or something. Um, but it was still like worrisome, um, you know, because combat tends to happen with the men. And so, um, it was just, it was, just an unease. You know, you didn't know what was going on. Um, and with these kids running across the road and this, these civilian vehicles getting in between our vehicles, um, they're not allowed to, you know, like the, the idea is that they're not allowed to like nobody, like they don't know that they're not allowed to, except that we point our weapons at them and we threaten to shoot them. You know, we're yelling at them. We're waving our weapon at them. um, you know, you, there was a couple of times on that convoy where I, I have to make the decision. Like, am I breaking for this kid that's running in the road right now? Because if I break for them and then we fall behind, how, are we going to catch up? And if I break for that kid, is somebody going to hit us? Like, is somebody going to shoot at us? If I break for that kid, is somebody going to like throw an ID? Like, are we going to stop on an ID? Like there's so many thoughts that are going through your mind. And like I said before, like it's not just my life. It's the life of the Marines inside the vehicle. If I stop on an IED, it's now the life of the Marines and the vehicle behind me. You know, if I get lost from the vehicle in front of me, the rest of the convoy behind me now gets lost. Um, that's
3: just, that's so good when you're talking about this, this journey. Uh, I think sometimes the illusion we believe is that, Hey, they're going into combat. It's just full out combat. They're just gonna do everything they can. But in reality, um, the Iraqi people are living their lives. Kids are playing by the road. Yeah. When, yep. Women are women are shopping. Men are shopping. They're they're having community gatherings, and and you still as a marine have a mission to stay a certain distance and continue at that speed, no matter what is what the convoy brief says. And then you, yep. you face these decisions that are constant. And you're, again, you're not a, a 35-year-old, 40-year-old human being. You're 21 years right. old. Insurance companies right. in America charge you a lot more money because the risk factor is so high. Right. So, so what what a remarkable like picture of a 21-year-old making life or death decisions just by driving from Kuwait to what was your final destination?
2: Yep. So we went to camp Takatam. So just West of Baghdad.
3: Incredible. And how how was the rest of the journey? What was it like getting to where your destination was?
2: Um, So we are driving. um, It was like three or four days. Um, We drive from 3 a.m. to 11 p.m. And at 11 p.m., we pull into like an army post. And basically, the army there's like 20 people on this post, and they're providing security so that we can pull in, take showers, and like quote unquote sleep, I guess. Like, I don't know what you're doing in four hours. Like, you're not sleeping, but you can, you can brush your teeth, you know, you can go to the bathroom, you can wash your hands, and then you can like rest somehow. Like, for a couple hours before the convoy, we were moving at three. Um, So um, as this convoy is going, it's insanely hot. I mean, it's a hundred plus degrees. It's like 110, 120 degrees. Um, You've got all of your equipment on it. Marines are known for this pack of gear. That's like 75 pounds. Like you're obviously not wearing it when you're in the Humvee, but like you're with your flak, your Kevlar, your rifle, you're with all this stuff and because it's so hot they're encouraging everybody like drink water drink water drink water that's cool um in theory so what would happen is that the convoy every so often like would pull off to the side of the road and all the male marines would stand up on the berm and like they'd all urinate off to the side well the females um i'm not doing that i'm not doing that Um, I'm not pulling down my pants. I'm not doing that in front of anybody. I'm also not going to be caught with my pants down and we're taking incoming. Like I can't just jump back into the vehicle. Like it's a process to get put back together. Um, so I was making the decision to be very conscientious about what water I was drinking and how often I was drinking it. Basically like dehydrating myself because I would not go to the bathroom. From 3 a.m. to 11 p.m. like you i it it was not happening um just kind of like another (laughs) stressor in this convoy um that goes on for a couple days and eventually we get to where we're going and it was insane as we're pulling up um to like this final destination of the convoy we are driving through this village And I will never forget like looking around me and there are houses that are crumbling. There are buildings that are burning. There is a car that's been abandoned with its hood up and it's on fire. Um, There was, okay, this part's graphic too. Um, There were like cement barriers with like remains of civilians that were like just on the ground. Um, There were dead dogs in the road. There was just like dead, everything was dead and decrepit and raised and on fire. Like, okay, not everything, but like it was just this sense of, you knew something went down in order for us to drive through this village. (laughs) Um, And what went down is that it had to be what the Marine Corps calls like cleared like that village had to be cleared. And what that means is that whoever was living in this house needs to get out. Um, And people don't go willingly because why would you leave your home? Um, You know, if you're on the road, you're no longer driving on the road. Like whatever is left is being abandoned. Um, It was very, you could tell it it seemed, it seemed like it was very forced um, clearing and everything is just,
1: just dead.
2: Um, and that was done so that we could then take over at that point in time, we had taken over the airport. And the reason for that was because the airport was going to be where our base was going to be. And so when our convoy rolled through, we rolled through the village that was cleared and we get to the cleared airport. And then it was our job to set up camp at this airport. And now you had to build the mortuary affairs buildings basically from scratch, correct? Yeah. So for us, um, so mortuary affairs, it's, we do get special treatment because we're like our own platoon and we're doing these, like these duties, right? So mortuary affairs, we got our own hangar because it was an airport. It had a hangar. um, had hangers, but um what was nice about the hangar too is that the hangar was it's like a half circle structure and the sides of the circle are like buried under sand so it's also like a fortified building um but then inside completely empty like there's no walls there's no electricity there's no there's no nothing inside it's just empty um so were we these, what's were that? the hangers there were the hangars there before we got there or were, was that yes. something that, okay. Yep. They were the Iraqi hangar. So those were the places where the Iraqis had their own airplanes. They were storing their own airplanes. Um, but when we got there, there wow. weren't any airplanes there. Except like the random airplane, like on the side of the road, but not in the hangar or anything. All those had been cleared out for us. Wow. So when we got there, we were able to get, I don't know how this happened. Um, I think it was too low of a rank to know how it happened, but um, somehow we got a whole bunch of construction supplies um, and we were, we kind of started designing the inside of this hangar. And so for us, what what we wanted was we wanted um, an area in the front where we could post two Marines so that they could stand duty. Um, which is like, like watch. And it was also like an area in the front where if people needed to come into the Mortuary Affairs hangar who were not Mortuary Affairs Marines, that could be their entrance. So it was kind of like a closed off room from the rest of the hangar. So you could come into the hangar without seeing the work that was being done. So we made that room. We made a room for our officer so that he could live and sleep at the hangar. So he could put a cot in his own room. Um, and he had his own desk in his own room. Um, we built, I think like three or four more rooms and then we put like cots in there so that if we needed to sleep in there, um, if we needed to post up, we could, um, and we'd have a couple of rooms and then we left the rest of the hangar open. Um, and we ran electrical wire and light bulbs along the sides of the hangar and then we built, um, stations in the middle of the hangar where we could process remains. So each station consisted of like, um, like a, a table with a wooden back. So it's all made out of wood, like plywood and two by four is like super rough. Like this is not countertops or anything like that. Like there's no granite. It's rough wood. Um, these tables. And then we, they're called litters. But basically, it's like a stretcher. Um, we put these stretchers on stands, so that they were like waist high, and then supported them with sandbags and then put sawdust underneath each one of these litters. Um, and then we put on the tables, um, triage scissors, um, face masks, gloves. We put all the paperwork that was needed, like ready to go, pens, um whatever kind of equipment we would need to process remains, we would put it on the table so that that way, when remains did come in, we were ready to go. We could just put the remains on the litter and jump on the station and process. So that's what our, the inside of our hangar looked like. Wow. So you had everything that you needed. Walk us through that. And you talk about this in your memoir when the first I guess body came in. What walk us through the emotions that were in that room that day? Yeah. So it was it was um it was very intense. And the words that I'm using I know like don't do it justice. Um because words can't grasp <laughs> uh this kind of experience for me. Um my so kind of going into this knowing that my words are not sufficing um so we got a call every every remain that we needed to process it all started with a call and um like they call this phone radio thing it's basically it's a military communication device it's like a box um it looks like it's from like the 40s or something um but it always starts with a phone call and they back then they would call the remains angels that's what they would call so they would say we have an angel down and um, every situation was different but so for this first one the way that the situation went they said we have an angel down we're going to bring him into you guys um, so our officer our we called him the sir so the sir called everybody in so all 15 of us at that point in time <laughs> into the hangar because he wanted us all to be together for the first remains. Um, and the person who had passed away, his members of his platoon actually brought him in, um, for us. So they bring him in and they lay him down on the litter. And there was just this blanket that like fell on us of this is really happening. You know, this, this moment of it's not just the class that we're talking about. It's not just this idea. It's not just this thought. This is actually happening. Um, and in my mind, um, my recollection of it is that um, we were all like frozen. And it's only frozen for like a second or two, but it was enough that our officer said, Come on, guys, let's go. Like there was enough of that hesitation that we actually needed to be ordered to. Start processing.
3: Okay, so the imagery, the imagery of this is like really uh, important. So people aren't aren't going to hear what happens when the platoon brings the remains in, because what you see as a non-mortuary affairs person for the first time is is brothers and sisters carrying in one of their own, and the the connection for you isn't that this is remains but this is right a marine
2: yes thank you um so that's another another layer to this is that this isn't some stranger yes we don't know him right like i don't i don't know i don't even know the name of this person but it's a marine and that means it's a brother. That means it's a sister. They're wearing the same uniform as us, right? They have the same haircut, right? All the guys have the same hair. Almost Most of the guys have the same haircut. He's got the same watch. We're all wearing the same watch. We all have the same wallet. He's got the same dog tags in the same location. You know, because we all shop at the same PX, the store. So we're all buying the same stuff. We all wear the same stuff. We all look the same. And so in comes somebody. And he looks just like us. Like that easily could just be me. Um, So there's this other added complexity of war um, that you're witnessing in connection to this remains. So even though I don't know this person, I am just like what we had talked about like with the boot camp and the training and the school i'm already connected to this person um and i personally like my i personally feel that that made our work that much more meaningful to us as individuals you know this connection to this person this reverence this respect this value for this life um I don't think it could have been more than what we were offering. So you mentioned that one of the 15 Marines that were in the mortuary affairs was a mortician in civilian life. How, yes. and you go into, obviously it's your memoir. So you go into how you were feeling in that moment, how you're feeling looking back. Do you know, what were what were his reactions during that? Because he he's dealt with it before. Um, yeah, he's seen the bodies and and what was his experience like compared to yours? Yeah, I think that his, he definitely had a different perspective. Um, so he was a little bit older than the majority of us. Um, and just having that different perspective as a mortician, um, that like additional professional level. So he, definitely like rose as a leader in our platoon which was really interesting because as a reservist and he was a corporal so an E4 so he had some rank but not a lot and yet we all looked up to him um and for active duty marines to respect and look up to a reservist there you know there's all kind of complexities in between branches and um services and active duty and reserves and but, i mean we really we really looked up to him and he was so professional and so kind and such a great leader that we fo- we followed him. Um so when he took the reins and he would say, all right, like let's do this, let's do this. Um and I I actually remember um one of the things that he brought to our platoon. He brought many things, but one of the things that he brought to our platoon was um one time we had um some remains come in and the remains had um some blood on his face. And I remember the mortician, his name's Connor. Connor went and got a rag and wiped his face. And I think, like, I remember watching him do it. And I remember thinking, like, that's definitely, you know, something special that we have. Because he came as a mortician. He knew to do that. Like, he could show us to do that. You know, he knew that extra level of compassion to teach us. And that's something, that compassion and that humanity is something that really, really comes across in the memoir. And it's like such to a point that as a civilian, the range of emotions that I went through just reading it were so clear and intense. Um, there's a lot of, I don't know how to really put it into words, but there's there's a lot of appreciation that I have for your story and for you and for what you did over there. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, that um that's felt by all of us, you know? Yeah. Like I think that, that felt by the Marines that were there for the loss of life. I think it's felt by the families. I think it's felt by the fallen. Um so I, I think that it's like a this collective feeling that we share together. Absolutely. Yeah, the-
3: so there's a reality. Like I think every active duty person that served alongside somebody that has perished in combat also appreciates the dignity that each amount of remains are are dealt with. So uh, thank you for doing that. I'm I'm, sh- I'm shocked that the reservist, the mortician. What what would have the deployment been like without that specific person with all of their knowledge? It would have changed the entire dynamic of what you did.
1: Yeah. For the better.
3: Yeah. No, no, no. no. I mean, if, if that person wasn't there. Yeah, obviously, they changed it for the better. I couldn't imagine a mortuary affairs unit without somebody like that. Yeah, them. yeah. It's wild.
2: So there was, yeah, one instant in the memoir that you spoke about that really struck me. Um, and it was when, remain uh, what is the appropriate title that you would give a a person that has passed in that situation yeah so i know it's kind of tricky. so we would say okay the term at the time was angel like a fallen angel so we would call them fallen angels we would call them angels but then it's also kind of tricky too because sometimes when remains come in it's just that it's just remains i mean it's 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 unidentifiable you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just a leg. Yeah. Like, and I'm not saying just, but in, just in, in terms of a body, you it's the only part of a body is coming in is liquid. Um, so when that would happen, we would call that remains. Um, I mean, knowing that it's all coming from the same people, it's all coming from these fallen angels, but that's when we would say remains when it was not a whole entity, you know, it, it wasn't a whole body or yeah. it was parts yeah so one of the there there's two that um two events that you talk about one of them that really stuck- stuck with me because of a personal experience um was when a fallen angel came in who hadn't yet passed um yeah I have family members who have been an r n who worked in nursing homes who um hospice you know have helped in that end of life care and they've mm-hmm. talked about the the spiritualness of being in the presence of someone taking their last breath my grandmother was there when her her father passed away along with my mother was there with her and they just it, mm-hmm. it was like this thing that really like brought them together just spiritually and this it kind of it puts a lot of things in perspective for anyone um and that's something that's always stuck with me is when people talk about being there when someone passes and, and just the, the feelings in that moment when the fallen angel came in now in, the, in the memoir he, he comes in um you notice that the rigor mortis isn't he, he's too loose still um and that's when you yeah. talk about breathing and you notice his chest is is still his lungs are still working you bring in the doc the doc looks at you guys and says we can't do anything What Mm -hmm. did you feel that sense of spiritualness that other people have talked that I've heard other people talk about? Or was it in the book, you really talk about kind of the anger of not being able to do anything and not being able to, you know, the the sense, the Marine embodiment of never leave someone behind, do everything you can for that person. Walk us through kind of those feelings Mm -hmm. in the moment and then looking back. Okay. Uh, yeah. In, in the moment. Um, so, um, yep. So they bring in this Marine, he comes to our station. Um, it's me and another Marine that's our, that are working on him and we get to, right to work and we're picking up his hands. And at that point in time, we were doing fingerprints. We didn't do that always, but, um, we were doing fingerprints and I just remember like his arms are moving like way too easy, like. We're getting his fingerprints like way easy here. Immediately my eyes go to his chest. Exactly what you said. And I see it rising and fall. So we call over our officer. The sir calls the doc. The doc comes over and the doc says, you know, there, there's nothing like he, we, he can't be saved. Okay. So just to kind of clarify, like his eyes were shut. He He was not conscious at all you know so uh, that does not make it any easier though so um so in the moment um, when the doc says there's nothing that we can do I say "Uh, so what do you want us to do and the doc says you just need to wait um our officer we had a really awesome officer our officer gave us permission that if at any point in time we needed to walk out of the hangar we could so I did um like I couldn't I was so angry. Like it just brings up so many emotions um, because exactly what you just said, like it brings up this desperation, like you want to do something and you can't do anything. Like there's nothing that can be done. No one can save it. It does not matter if we have a team of surgeons here, like we cannot do anything like it. There's nothing that can be done. He is brain dead. Um, his body has just not finished shutting down yet. Um, like there's there's nothing that can humanly on earth be done, and I was I'm not okay with that. Like I'm just not. I just wasn't okay with that, and so I walked out. Um, and I I started crying outside the hangar. Um, just so frustrating to know that we lost. Some, it's just you know you you lose you all these remains that are coming in every single one of them hurts. Every single one of them is a heartbreak. And to know that one of them was on the edge, um, whether it was realistic or not, um, of him living, it which it wasn't, um it it is really hard to deal with. Um and it was it wasn't very long, you know, I mean it was only a couple minutes. Um and and I came back in and he had he had finished shutting down, basically
1: um like so we finished processing him um you know and looking back
2: um I have a better understanding that there was nothing that could be done you know at the time like 21 year old Jessica you know, just wanted to save him. I wanted to do CPR. You know, that that stuff wasn't realistic. That that wasn't what he needed to live. Um, he needed like a new brain. Like he needed uh, like his wounds to be removed. Like that he was not going to live. Um, but that was really hard for me to deal with back then. Just I just. I you know at that point in time so many marines like we all think we're superman we all think we're invincible we all think we can do everything and save everybody and do everything and to realize
1: that you can't that was what was so hard. Yeah. So there was um a couple other
2: events that happened as well. Um and another one that really struck out to me was um, and we've we've kind of touched upon this that the Marines isn't always necessarily. There, there's a lot of ugly in kind of that the brotherhood that's there. There's women aren't necessarily treated equally. That people aren't treated equally. And it sounds like the Marines through your memoir take it to another step. And there was a suicide that happened on base. Um, I didn't realize, I know it's something that is a huge topic now. Um, 22 veterans take their life every day. Um, what is, is that something that was, you know, it happened once or is that something that happened a lot? When we were there, um, it, it only happened that one time. Um, And back then, I think there was less known about suicide. I think there was still this mentality that, you know, this is so bad. It's a stereotype. It's not true. But this is the mentality. This was at least what was passed on to us at that time was, you know, if you commit suicide, you're weak. It's because you can't do it. And I, I realize now that that was the Marine Corps' way of trying to say, like, be strong. You can do this. Like, you've got this. You have these tools. You have these brothers. Like, use them. You're strong. Um, however, that's not that's not that's not why people commit suicide. They don't, they don't commit suicide because they're weak. They don't. That's not why. Um, uh, but yeah, so we had this the one the one suicide, and that was really hard to kind of wrap our minds around because we're already in this dangerous situation where we could die at any, okay. You could die at any point in time. Like we could take, in, we do, you do take incoming at any point in time. Um, the accuracy of missiles is atrocious. Um, it's, but it is possible of getting hit. Um, you know, when you go on convoys, you can hit an ID at any point in time. You can take incoming at any point in time. Like you're never, in combat it's not like it was a very long time ago where there was like a line in the sand and that's the combat line like you're just in this environment of combat and so to know that you're living in this very dangerous situation and you value life um to such a great extent in those dangerous situations like to know that somebody didn't know what else to do except to kill themselves was really hard to the grasp and the process and this is really difficult like it it's obviously needless to say i mean being in mortuary affairs that experience is it rocks you to your core because it makes you think things you would never have otherwise had to think about you know it makes you question the world and yourself and your religion and your views and your beliefs and your thoughts, like in ways that you had never prepared yourself to think about. And a lot of the times those questions come up unanswered, like there's no answer to these questions or there's no like easy resolve. And so I think a lot of us kind of get stuck in this like merry-go-round of trying to find answers. And I think that that suicide was kind of, that suicide was definitely one of those points in time that really rocked us. And the cause of his suicide, um, it was because of the way he was treated on base with his fellow Marines. Does that put a distrust or a bad taste in your mouth towards your brothers and sisters
1: in uniform?
2: I think obviously that's not something that any Marine is proud of. Like that's not a culture that we want to identify with. Okay. There's like a lot of mixed feelings about this. And I know that that sounds like really weird to say. Marines are really hard on each other because we know we are going to go into life and death situations. And if you are not up to physical fitness standards, if you are not paying attention in class, like you could kill me. Um, so there's often a lot of pressure on each other to perform. Um, and when people aren't performing, um, it was in my experience, I've seen people get singled out because it's so important that you do pay attention. It is so important that you are um, physically fit. It is so important that you are doing your job because other lives are dependent on that. And And in the same token, that can get taken too far. And when it gets taken too far, it turns into bullying, hazing, suicide you know so I can see the reason behind it I'm not saying that it's okay I'm not saying it's right I'm not saying it's wrong I'm just saying there is a reason behind it and I see it go too far I thought go too far um it's it's hard it's hard to come to terms to
1: absolutely because that was too much so that was a death that was not that didn't have to happen
2: And there's a part of that that was caused by his immediate
1: environment. That's hard. That's hard to come to terms with.
3: So So, for people that are listening, I just want to like grasp this. Is there justice for the Marine that lost his life to suicide because of, because of somebody else's actions? Like, uh it, as a citizen I'm like wait a second that's not right. Uh right. what what happens Jessica do, do do we just continue continue marching and and doing life or is is there some sort of investigation what happened?
2: So I don't know um with that immediate situation with that specific situation what happened. Um I well I do know that there's always an investigation for um for the majority of the deaths that we processed, there was always like some sort of follow up investigation or like interview like there's definitely like looking into i don't know the extent of that or what it comes of that. I will say that what I know now about the Marine Corps is that the Marine Corps, in my opinion, has come a long way about suicide and suicide awareness and hazing and bullying, and I think that it's a different core today than what it was back then um and I I
1: don't I hope that situations like that are what spur that change.
2: Like it's unfortunate obviously that that's what ha- happened and sometimes that kind of stuff has to happen for change to occur. But maybe that's some things that could come from it, that came from it. You know, I don't know. That's all like c- you that's all you can hope for.
1: Yeah. Thanks
2: for answering that. Right. I mean, that's difficult. It's difficult.
1: I don't. I don't know the answer. I think that is a a, a good. I mean, there's no good, but it, it's a
2: it's a fair way of seeing it. That something really bad happened, but hopefully, change and progress and growth can come from that kind of situation. And hearing that. The Marine Corps has come that far. A really good family friend of ours, um, their son just graduated this week from the Marines, um, from boot camp. So to hear that, that that positive
1: has come from negative is, I think, pretty reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing that you had spoken about in your memoir was is that
2: there are Iraqi locals that work for the military. Um, there was a restaurant on, on the base that you were on, um, that was run
1: by Iraq, uh, by locals. And which I think is, is slightly, it is almost
2: surprising because you have this, you know, you're, we're going in, and there's a lot of controversy about why we're in Iraq. Um, mm-hmm. But to know that there are people that look at the military um, for who these soldiers are, which are fellow humans mm-hmm. and vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. But people that are wor- the locals that are working for you, like you you talk about having basically they, they're, Working with guns pointed at them all day, and then they turn around and offer you food. Um, yeah it sounds like there's a lot of compassion over there as well. There's a lot of humanity that oh yeah, that you're surrounded surrounded by. Did you find it hard to trust them, or were you confused at
1: their reactions to Americans? Um, I don't think any of us trusted any of them at all. Um, just from like, just being
2: trained not to, um, so never letting down your guard. Like there's still an Iraq at the end of the day. Like you can't trust it because you have we just have no idea, um, so for the simple fact of just safety. Um, um, but yeah, it was very interesting, very interesting. So it brings, you know, it's combat and war are not straightforward. They're just infused with these complex situations and these emotions. Um, and so, you know, while I say we didn't trust them at all, and the same token, I mean, I was eating the food that they would serve. So I guess there is like some sort of level of trust. Um, you and know, you were also right? There were, there were also <laughs> locals that were coming in the mortuary affairs that you were processing right so you know trust isn't just you know do you trust somebody or not there are certain areas in which you trust people and how much do you trust them um yeah it's so complex and so um yeah so sometimes locals would have to come on base because um let's say there was a firefight and there were um people that passed away and we got called into the site and we would pick up everybody that had fallen and we would process all of them. And then we would, we would have contacts in the community and we would say, you know, we have this person who looks like this. We found on this date, you know, this is where we're located. Like, please come in to collect them. Um, And so we had on several occasions locals come in to collect remains um just like what you, like earlier like they were making food on our base um and like by restaurant basically there's a fire pit and they're cooking meat and there's like a table and they're putting food on a plate for us it's not you know like a sit down restaurant or a cafe or anything like that but we're still eating the food that they're making which was delicious um there were people that were selling tea on base we're drinking the tea um you know, some locals are coming in and doing our laundry and doing some of the cleaning, like of the trailers and the bathrooms. Um, so there's this level of like there's people on your base providing a service. So I guess on some level, you have to trust them to do that. And at the same time, uh, can you trust them? Right. Like it's so conflicting.
3: Yeah. The The story is we're at war with Iraq, but in reality... There's only a very, very small population of Iraqis that we're in a war fight with. Everybody, right, else, right, is yeah. just a living, everybody else is just living their own lives. And what yeah. really happens is this migrant company comes in that is a yep. war fighting company, but it's a place of employment for the local nationals. Yeah. And, and they are just doing the very best they can do. In what's gotta be an incredible time in their life, I can't imagine living a normal life, having a foreign country invade, and then getting a job on one of the little sites that used to be Bob's Corner Pizza Shop. Right. And and now I'm I'm cooking food and making a ton of money off this company that came in. You know, it happens to be the United States yep. Marine Corps, but. Uh, these are these are just people. They're human beings. Like when you when you yep. uh, when you said it in this your speech that I listened to, the reality is you process remains, and when you when you're in it, outside of an ID tag or, or or some sort of marking, you can't tell if it's an Iraqi or if it's the United States Marine because
1: we're all right. people.
2: Yes, and there's actually. There's actually Marines that are Muslim, that are Iraqi, that are from Saudi Arabia, like we have international marines, so it's not it's it's not a clear line. yes, there's a lot of gray in this black and white world we live in
1: mhm
3: well it's just it's just so good in, in in your speech, and I'm sure you get to it in your memoir uh, of just understanding the the humanity of it all yeah and, and alyssa, you said uh these people have guns pointed them at them all day i just- just for the record when they're serving food the marines aren't pointing their guns at them. they get in a lot of trouble for that um in fact, the marines have great rifle discipline, so they'll they'll keep it pointed in a safe direction so when when they're there in the interactions unless you're a hostile or doing something wrong the, the United States Marines are not going to be pointing their weapons at people for just because they're there it's just for a point of clarification
1: right yes i think okay I said, also yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: and also i feel like as a service member i know what pointing right like i know if you're pointing your weapon at me like I, i'm very aware of it i also feel that civilians may think that if your weapon is in their direction that you're pointing at them you know what i'm saying like i feel like there could also be like a difference in perspective too of, Yo, your weapons on me. When like a service member might be like, well, it's not directly on you, and and the civilian might be like, no, that's way too close. (laughs) Like, um, but either way, either way, the fact that there's still weapons and like all these interactions, right? Because you don't go anywhere without your weapon, it still brings like a level of hostility to these situations. Right. I mean, like, we don't go to the mall with our, well, I mean, I, I understand, like, conceal and carry and everything, but, like, you don't have your weapon, like, out and about. Um, and if you're attacks. from Texas
3: or not, you know, but that, right. That <laughs> right. <is there?
2: laughs> right. Um,
3: so, so that's a good yeah. point, though. I'm sure, and I'm sure, like, with your interactions, you have an M4 or the Marine Corps didn't get M4s until, like, 2016. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, you, you have your M16, your long rifle on your back yeah. and you're interacting with these people and it is a relatively normal interaction for all things considered
1: right right
3: you're you're ordering your food hey can i get some chicken nuggets on, on that piece of bread and you're happy they're happy and you might even talk about life a little bit
0: right yep wow Jessica's story of her experiences while deployed in 2004 are truly incredible. If you'd like to read more about her experiences not covered in this podcast episode, you can purchase her book, Shade It Black, Death and After in Iraq, on Amazon. In part three, we spoke to Jessica about her experience coming home, how she coped with her trauma, and ultimately, how she started to heal. So you you served in 2004. Was it into two thousand and five or just two thousand and four? No,
1: you were
2: just two thousand and four. Into- okay. Yep. Um, so we went to Iraq in the beginning of two thousand and four and didn't come home till the end of two thousand and four.
1: Awesome. So, what was? And you, and you again, you talk about this in your memoir. You came home. Um, you were in a relationship with a fellow marine, correct? Mm-hmm. And very different experiences but very similar at the same time um a very tumultuous relationship yeah. um and then you decided to go back to school wow yeah
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> oh you said that so nicely um It did not play out that nicely, though. Um, But yeah, so at the time, um, the person that I was in a relationship with, um, he had been part of that initial invasion in March 2003. um, And he had worked with the MPs, which is the military police, um, taking care of and processing POWs. So enemy POWs. Um, And that experience profoundly impacted him. And so with my experiences in Mortar Affairs, I was just shaken to the core. Um, and two storms do not make a calmness. Um, it was it was a disaster. It was a disaster. Um, so needless to say, that did not work out. Um, but when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, so I got out in 2005, I was just so lost. Um I just didn't know what way was up, which way was down. Um, the beliefs that I had previous to the deployment just weren't there anymore. And so basically, I had lost my coherent system of beliefs and just kind of searching for what was right, what was wrong, what was just, what was fair, who am I, right? What do I believe in? Um, and to say that mortgage affairs took a toll on my life, I mean, an uh,
1: understatement.
2: Um, so luckily, um, I came from a background that was very heavy on academia. And um, that was the push in my family, like everyone goes to college. That was what was expected of me initially. So, um, Mm -hmm. eventually I found my way back home and I didn't know what to do with myself. And so kind of the default was go to school. I can go to college. I got to go to school. I got to do something. And then you started um, going for psychology. Yeah. So I, um, well, what really happened was that I (laughs) couldn't get off my parents' couch I couldn't get off my parents' couch. I was living at my dad's house, and I couldn't get off his couch. And were my dad dealing, was like, "Were you dealing with depression or oh PTSD? my gosh, yes, right?" So my life is just upside down. Um, I didn't know at the time what was going on. I just knew that nothing was right. Um, so at this point in time, I hadn't seen a counselor. I didn't have any diagnoses. I wasn't on any medication. Um but I was drinking, I was on drugs. I was doing anything just to stay afloat. Um, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, I wasn't showering. Like I, I wasn't functioning. And I was staying at my father's house. I'd been there about two weeks and my dad was having none of it. He was like, Jessica, like, you need to get off the couch. Like you need to go do something, like go get a job, go to school. You need to go do something like you, this is not happening um and so that was good because that was like that push that I needed like okay something's got to give I'll go to college. Um and luckily after the Marine Corps like you have a GI bill. Um also though since I was in my hometown um and I had graduated at the top of my high school class I was able to go to the local community college for free. So that's what I did. Yeah. I just started going to community college because I didn't I didn't know what to do. So I just started going to community college and um the community college, my major was social sciences. Um, cause it's a small school. <laughs> um, so that was as much mm-hmm. to the psychology as I could get. Um, and I started going full time. I mean, I was actually at one point in time, I was taking 21 credits. I was taking 23 credits a semester. Um, I had to get special permission from the Dean to be taking all these credits. Um, and I just threw myself into school. Um, And it was there at the community college um, where I I was taking these sociology classes. And it was the first time that I had ever heard about the world in a different way. Um, And I was really learning about how our culture and our society fits into a larger culture and a larger society with larger purposes. Um, And it really just started opening up my perspective to bigger pictures um that just before i hadn't thought about you know i was just too young i was just too self-centered to think about um mm-hmm. and one day i was in my sociology class and the professor asked me if i would hang back after class um so after class everyone was dismissed everyone left and i i went up to the professor and he goes he says to me something is different about you he goes, you're not like the other students in this room. He goes, You come to class early, you're not on your phone, you pay attention, you take notes, you sit up straight. Um, I was getting a hundred. And if there was any extra credit, I was getting the extra credit. He's like, You're getting a hundred on all your assignments, you're getting a hundred on the all all the exams. What's different? Um, and I had no idea um what he was talking about. So I just said, you know, I'm I'm a marine. I I I don't know other than that what's different. And he said, that's it. Um, and he goes, would you mind coming to my office and talking to me about like some of your experiences? Like I'd like to know, right. Cause he's a sociology professor wants to know about military. Um, so I said, sure. So I went to his office and mind you, I wasn't showering. Like I was in the same clothes. Like I, I like didn't, I didn't change my clothes ever. Um, so I had on this outfit that I always wore. And, um, so I probably smelled, I had a smell. Um, and I go into his office and he's asking me, you know, like, so what did you do in the Marine Corps? And I, I told him how I was a Mac and I told him how I did more affairs and I could see like the light bulb click in his head. Like, that's what's going on with you. Like he knew, right. I didn't know, but he knew. Um, and he goes, you know, have you ever talked to anybody about your experiences or anything? And I said, no. And he goes, um, well, you know, I, I know that if you tell somebody about your experiences, you know, there's a good chance that, um, you might feel better. You know, if we can give your story a beginning, a middle and an end, he goes, your brain actually processes it different. Um, and he just started like telling me the benefits of sharing with somebody that I trust and um and he said would you be willing to meet with me and tell me about your experiences um and at that point like i had nothing to lose i mean i was mm-hmm. suicidal i i wasn't leaving my house i wasn't i wasn't going anywhere i didn't have any friends i wasn't calling anybody i wasn't texting right like i had nothing going on in my life except for school um and that was like only keeping me alive you know by the skin of my teeth so um, I started a meeting with this professor and he had like interview questions. And I would show up to his office. I mean, I would be so high. I would bring in like a six pack, like I'd bring in alcohol. Like I would I came from <laughs> like I was so fucked. Up. I was so messed up. Um just so high, so drunk. And sometimes he would ask me questions and I'd talk for 10, 15 minutes and then I would just be sobbing and I couldn't talk anymore you know, other times I'd come into his office and he'd be asking me all these questions and I could talk for an hour, hour and a half, right? Like it, it just varied on the topic, the questions, probably how high or how drunk I was, right? Like a variety of things. And sure. um, he eventually, like this went on for like a couple months. And um, one day I showed up and he had typed it all and printed it all and he handed it to me and he said here you go he goes this is your story he goes so whenever you're ready like here it is and i took it and i went home and i put it in the drawer of my dresser to never be seen again like i didn't want anything to do with it i didn't want to look at it i didn't want to think about it no nothing right and then i just stopped talking with my professor like it it all just ended and um And a couple months went by. Um, and at that point in time, like I was already done with the community college. I had already transferred to a four year university. Um, that was still in the same neck of the woods, but I was no longer at that university at the community college. So, Mm -hmm. um, one day I open up the drawer and I pull out the manuscript and I'm like, I got to do something with this. Like something has to give, like my life was so awful. Like it was awful um still not eating not sleeping um having nightmares having flashbacks i'm drunk i'm hot i'm not showering i'm not doing laundry i'm not i don't have any fucking friends. sorry I, I don't have any friends um my life was just awful and um I would come back to my apartment and I would drink and I'd get drunk and I'd be laying on the floor and I'd crawl to the toilet and I'd throw up and I'm just by myself. It was awful. Suicidal. Don't want to live. Don't want to go another day. And I thought something's got to give, like something has to give, like what, what, what's got to give. And so I pulled out the story from the dresser. I called up the professor and I said, can we meet? Like, I think I'm ready. And so I went into his office, and we went line by line over the story, and we edited it. you know, there were some things that I corrected, um you know, like um, you know, it wasn't like that it was actually like this, or like I know I said this initially, but like I'm thinking about it longer, and I think it's more like this, right? like I'm changing it mm-hmm. um and he goes through and he edits the whole thing, and so we meet a couple of times like that, you know, going through it all. And then, um, that goes on for like, you know, a month or two. And then at the end of it, he, he edits it all and he prints it all out again. And he says, Jessica, he goes, what do you think if I turn this into like a publishing company? He goes, I think that there's a really good chance that a publishing company would want to publish this. Um, what do you think? And I said, I think this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, nobody cares about my story. Nobody wants to hear it. Like, this is no, that's not what we're doing here. Like, you're trying to help me. Like, I'm getting help. Right. Like, I thought that that was like my therapy. I'm like, this is like, this, yeah, like, this is about me. This is not about anybody else. Nobody else cares. Nobody else wants to know. And he's like, then Jessica, he goes, why don't I just send it out? And if somebody bites, they bite. And if not, no harm done. And I was like, you can do whatever you want to do. Like, I was, oh, I had such an attitude. I was such a jerk. I was so, <laughs> I I was not a good person. I was not fun to be around. I was not nice. Um, and so he sent it out to some publishing companies. And this publishing company who publishes um, military stories, Casemate Publishing, picked it up. And they said, we want it. And we want more. Um, wow so it was never intended to be my story was never intended to be published <laughs> never intended to be shared um, it was really an attempt like this last ditch attempt to like get me out of my funk um and people always ask me like so was writing the book like therapeutic and i will tell you no it was not it was horrific it was awful. Like it sent me into nightmares and flashbacks. I was not in a good place for it. Like it was not, it was not good. However, what came from it
1: was so worth it.
2: Um, so once the book got published, that's when I started talking to people. That was the first time, oh my gosh. So um, I just got really excited because um, that, so the book gets published, right? nobody has ever heard what I did in Iraq. Nobody like not my mom, not my dad, nobody in my family, no friends, no nothing. Right. So the book gets published and I get a, I get a couple copies for myself and I give one to my mom and I give one to my dad. And that's the first time they read the book. And that's the first time they've ever heard like what I did in Iraq, like what happened in mortuary affairs. Um, they had no, like they had no idea prior to that. So I mean this book just like opened up connections and pathways
1: that never would have existed otherwise, which is crazy because it was never intended to be a book. And I, I think that
2: something that I mean, I, I I the amount of emotions I felt reading it. Um so I am about
1: your age when the book was <clears throat> published um very much a lot of what you're saying very different beginnings but a lot of
2: the emotions i think as with as women as young adults that have dealt with trauma at some point in their life there's an existential crisis almost yes (laughs) it's that like um it's because it's not a it's not the the midlife um
1: oh what what am i looking for the um
2: the, it's the quarter life
1: crisis and when you have yeah. some kind of tr- trauma that's
2: in your life you're trying to figure out who you are what's your purpose yeah. um when you talk about relationships i've had relationships never to that extent but i've had relationships i can i can understand on that level um yeah It just all of this emotion and i was going to ask what the process was in regards to writing that and if it was therapeutic and it very much comes across as a conversation so it makes sense that that's kind of how it was written um because the level of detail and emotion that's in there is so um i just recently met someone where we have really long conversations about really deep things in our brains and Mm -hmm. that's how it feels reading the book and it comes across that way and it emphasizes your experiences um to a point that
1: anyone who has dealt with trauma can read the book and understand yeah and get that that sense yeah we all have our own
2: trouble that That was just mine, and every like we all we all go through that period where we question ourselves or we question our purpose or our meaning or our value, like we question who we are, um yes, yeah, so I'm glad you said that there's definitely like this commonality that that got tapped
1: into, mm-hmm. which just makes the story that much more powerful, yeah. Yeah. So now that it's been about 10 years, I think, since it was published. um, Yeah. Crazy. (laughs) A lot has happened in your life. and A A lot. lot. Good. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Um, And I think this is a really important aspect of your story to showcase on the podcast because like you just said you were not you you came out of the marines not in a good place doing a lot of things you shouldn't have been doing suicidal depressed a monster to be around um yeah oh yes
1: what has the last 10 years looked like (laughs) okay (laughs) it's a bit of a
2: ride so um okay so Um, I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in psychology. And that was like no surprise because I was going to get my bachelor's in psychology before the Marine Corps anyway. So, you know, I was just kind of defaulting to what my original plan was initially. Okay. Along the way, what ended up happening is that after writing the book and I started getting these invites to participate in conferences and different speaking engagements, And so that allowed me the opportunity, this unique opportunity to tell my story over and over and over again. And to people that were so caring and so empathetic and so interested and so supportive. Like, what a privilege to be able to do that. Um, And me telling my story over and over again allowed me to start processing things and start to realize things and start to come to some conclusions about some things, right? So one of the things that I realized along the way was that I am, I have a lot of issues. Like there's, I was really impacted. And okay, while that might be obvious to the outsider, to the person going through it, like, I didn't realize, okay, like in my defense, like, I didn't know what was wrong. I knew stuff was wrong, but I didn't, I couldn't pinpoint it. Like I, I, I just, I didn't know because to me, I was broken over a period of time. And so I didn't know the ways in which it it felt like I was broken. I didn't realize the ways in which I was impacted. Um, Until I was talking in front of people and these people were like giving me hugs and like saying like they, they cared about me and that they were praying for me. And I'm like, why is all these people like, being so nice. <laughs> and I realized it was because like they saw like how
1: hurt I was. Um so that got me thinking like you know,
2: I think I can do something about this. So I started going to counseling. And um it was not a good experience at first. It was, at first it was really awful. Um, like I kind of just went through like a whole bunch of counselors in the beginning because, okay, PhD Jessica knows that 21 or 22 (laughs) year old Jessica was not ready, but 22 year old Jessica was very angry at these counselors and thought these counselors didn't understand. Um, you know, at one point in time I, I had sat down with a counselor, my initial meeting with her, um, she asked me to recount my trauma just to kind of give her an idea of where we're starting from. And I started like getting into it and she kept interrupting me to have me explain certain terminology, certain terms. Um, you know, she was just like asking questions, which were all good questions. Says me 10 years later, but me at the time got very angry with her and was like, you need to let me talk. You need to let me just say what I need to say. Um, and I literally got up and left. Um, so it took me like a long time of trying, like years, like three or four years of like trying this counselor. Nope, I don't like them. Right. Like I I just wasn't ready. Like I wanted to do it, but I wasn't ready. Um, so eventually um, I was in the parking lot of a grocery store and it was a big deal for me because I wasn't leaving my house, right? Like my cupboards are empty and I'm actually in my car at, the, at a grocery store and I'm sitting in the parking lot, like debating whether or not I'm going to go in. And my phone rings. And also at that point in time, I was not answering my phone. Um, But I looked at it and I was like, you know what? I can do this. I'm going to answer my phone. I'm going to do this. Meanwhile, it's like ringing, right? And I'm like, I can do this. I'm answering <laughs> it. And um, still ringing, still ringing. And I answer it and i'm like hello and it was a vet center um i happened to be the B- buffalo B- vet center um from buffalo new york and it was a counselor and she said hey um you know you kind of came across my radar and i just wanted to reach out and see if you would be interested in coming in for an appointment now i have no idea how i came across the radar or what that was like i'm sure i was like flagged by the va i'm sure but um anyway um i said okay, I'm going to do this. I can come in. I can do this. Right. Like I'm just like reinforcing, like I can do this. I can do this. So, um, I made an appointment and I went in and that started me being in counseling for about seven years. Um, and when I first started counseling, um, I was going twice a week. Um, and for those who are savvy with counseling, that means that I was really in the situation. I was a really intense patient to be going in twice a week, every week. Um, I, um, that was, so I was doing that individual counseling. I was going in for group counseling. Um, I was in a women's group. I was in a PTSD group. I mean, I just started being a patient in counseling. Um, and along That way, um, when I was going to those counselors who I just thought like didn't get me, I kind of like made this decision like, you know, I'm going to figure this out for my own. So during that time, I actually enrolled and got accepted into a PhD program for counseling psychology. So, in addition to me being a patient, I am like intensely studying the psyche. I'm you know I'm going to school I'm going to all these classes I'm going to all these practicum like I'm doing all this stuff um so I'm intensely involved as being a student of psychology as being a patient of psychology and I was just like so committed like something has to give something has to change I'm going to figure this out like I I can do this um so fast forward a couple of years, and I ended up graduating with my PhD in counseling and school psychology as like a dual program. Um, wow. My focus—I know this sounds really strange—but my focus is PTSD and veterans. <laughs> um, that's my specialty area. They say research what you know. So I was like terrific. I um, I happen to have some things going on. Um. So, needless to say, when I was a patient, and I was seeking counseling. Um, I was initially diagnosed with um major depression disorder. I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, um, an eating disorder, PTSD, severe. Um I mean it was intense. Um and it was Okay, it's kind of funny now, but like at the time when my counselor was like, Yeah, um, she told me my diagnoses. Um, that's -hmm. kind of whatever. People do it different ways or whatever, but she wanted to communicate with me, like, hey, this is what's going on. Cause remember, like, I had no idea what was going on in my life. And like, here it is, like I meet the diagnostic criteria for a whole bunch of things. And so she was like telling me what's going on. She's like, So you do meet criteria for PTSD and it's severe. And I was like no, I don't like, she's like, (laughs) Jessica, you have nightmares. You have flashbacks, like you're hypervigilant. You're paranoid. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, you meet criteria. And I'm like, no, I don't like, I, I couldn't accept it. I was like, people with PTSD are so much worse off than I am. And she was like, Jessica, like, no, it's you. Um, I mean, it's like, I was not an easy patient, like a super denial. Um, okay. So I go through the PhD program. I go through all these years of counseling I'm focusing on PTSD and veterans. So what ends up happening from this, I end up working for the VA. I do all these different rotations because I cannot get enough of
1: working with veterans. To me, that's incredible. Right, right. I mean, these are people, Okay.
2: This can be said about many different populations. So I'm not trying to say that this is only about veterans. But for me, obviously, my personal connection with veterans, for me, the meaning and the purpose was working with veterans because these are people who have literally sacrificed their life, whether they've died or not. They've sacrificed their life and they deserve like, in my opinion, they deserve the highest quality of care that we can give. So I was like super student. Right, because like every chapter that I'm reading, like I need to absorb as much information as I can because I'm going to apply it. Right, I'm going to use this. Like every research project, like I have to do this to the to the T because this is going to impact these veterans. Like, so I just found so much meaning and purpose in my PhD program, which is really awesome. Um, and I end up right. So I end up working for the VA. I do a rotation with. Um, veterans with serious mental illness. So that's veterans with schizophrenia, bipolar, PTSD, substance abuse. It's um, very intense diagnoses. Um, I did a rotation in geropsychology. So I was working with veterans that were 65 plus. um, And a lot of them working with um, like diagnoses of dementia and PTSD and kind of the combination of the two of those. Um, I did a rotation in substance use um I did a rotation at a PTSD residential unit like I could not get enough um and it was so awesome and one time like okay another like little proud moment that I had um I was leading group therapy for this group of veterans and I'm talking to them about PTSD and one of the veterans said like how do you know so much (laughs) about (laughs) PTSD and I was like you know, like I, I I read a lot. You know, I'm doing a lot of research. Like I, I'm in this program. You know, like it, it's it's my job to know this. And he was like, No, no, you know way more than what's in the books. Um, so that that to me, it made me know that I was on the right track because I had done my own healing. Like I'm not there yet, but I've done a lot of healing. Um. You know, I've done my research, I've done my education, and then to like incorporate it into something that I can then offer as
1: hope for someone else. That's what I want, right? And that's what I was doing. Um,
2: so I felt like I was really successful. Um, I mean, it was awesome. Being a psychologist for the VA, oh my God, it's so rewarding. Um, and then I went on vacation, um, because my contract, so I was working on annual contracts with the VA. I was working at two VAs simultaneously and my contract for both of them ended, it had started and ended at the same date. Um, oh, wow. and so I was like, you know, I need to go on vacation. Like I've been really intense on this counseling. I've been really intense as a student. Like I, I need a, a little time here before I start up again. So I took a vacation and I met um, my current partner. And once we met, we realized that we had the same values. We have similar goals. We're very similar um, people. Like we fit really well together. Mm -hmm. Um, So I moved to Florida to be with him. Oh my God. And yeah, like totally uprooted. Um, Because I was living in New York, uprooted, moved down to Florida, and we almost immediately started working on our family. Um, So right now, we currently have a 10-month-old daughter. Her name is Isabella. She's awesome. She's so amazing. And we are currently pregnant with our second child. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. So that is the last 10 years. Um, there's been a lot of difficulty in that and just so much good, so much good has come from the onward and upward. Um, okay. Robert Frost has this quote and it really helped me as cliche as this might be, but he said, the only way out is through. And that's really what got me through it. Because I needed out, wow. I needed to get out, and there was no denial. There's no substance use that can get you out of it. There's no, you know, there's no easy way out of it. The only way out of this
1: murk is through. Um, so that's why I did. So worth. That's it. incredible. I'm a big believer
2: in everything happens for a reason. Um, you know. Sometimes we have to go through really trying, difficult, ugly
1: times to see the brighter side. Um, Yeah. And you quoting Robert Frost. um, Robert Frost is from Derry, New Hampshire.
2: It's his house that he had in when he was alive is actually right down the street from my dad's house.
1: Wow. Um,
2: So... It's it's one of those things that, it, probably reading too much into it, but it's very much, this conversation is happening right now
1: is very significant to me. Oh, good. It's <laughs> so just yeah. one, of those, one of those things that it everything really just gets put into perspective and yeah. 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 So it's
2: something you mentioned in the last episode was you
1: wanted to go over um, in order to feel like you've made a difference.
2: Having gone through what you've gone through since 2001, do you feel like you've made the difference that you were set out to make? I do. <laughs> And not in the way that I thought it was going to happen, right? Like I thought that, you know, somehow I was going to go to Iraq and I was going to, you know, change the war, or like save these people or like have these like heroic moments. And that was going to be the difference that I was going to make. And, you know, all that's up for debate, <laughs> You know, I, I didn't I didn't do I didn't do any of that stuff, right? I mean that's not that's not what happened. What happened is is that I got plunged into the darkness and I clawed my way through it
1: and in the process I know that I've connected with people. I
2: know that I've given people hope that didn't have hope before. Like, I know that I've made a difference
1: in other people's lives.
2: Um, You know, maybe not significant, maybe not a big one,
1: but I know that I pushed. Um, And in that way, that's how I think I've made that difference. I think in that way, that's how I became who I wanted to become. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. It has been incredible to listen to you, to read your memoir.
2: Um, Thank you for your service, and thank you for continuing to put good out into the world. Thank you, Alyssa.
0: That means a lot. Thank you for joining myself and guest host Art Briggs on this episode of the podcast with Jessica Goodell, Marine Veteran. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and follow the Homeland Heroes salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the Uniform Services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, DairyCam, or any other organization. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>